Blog Talk Radio. Talk to podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for today's show. Today's show is actually number three in a new series that I've started called Skills a Toddlers Must Use Before Words Emerge. And so if you've missed the previous two shows, let me give you a little uh, synopsis of those uh, contents. However, my best recommendation for you would be go back and listen because it really will set the stage and establish the groundwork for all the things we're going to talk about today. So in show number 275, so again, if this is your first time to listen and you're just jumping in here, I applaud your enthusiasm, (laughs) but you will be best served if you go back and listen to uh, the beginning show in this series. In show number 275, we talked about the milestones that children acquire, particularly regarding vocabulary size, as they first begin to talk. And so if you, let me tell you why this is important. Now, if you're a therapist, you know this stuff, you live this stuff, you breathe this stuff, <laughs> you assess children, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, so you are certainly very familiar with what the milestones are for the test that you're using. So some of us, pardon me, my allergies must be going this morning. So some of us, here's what happens when we're therapists. We become so familiar with those milestones that we forget about normal development. We forget about how typical language development looks. So we know the milestones on our test that really are cutoffs. So in a way, it means the very bottom, the very just, again, rock bottom number or level or or age that we're using when we're looking at the skills that we use on a test or the, the indicators that we're measuring on a test. So over time, we somehow think of that as normal instead of the very ending or the very outermost edge of normal. So when we go back and really, as a therapist, review normal language acquisition, meaning that at 12 months, typically developing babies have two to six words. And sometimes if if you say that to a speech pathologist or developmental therapist or whatever kind of early intervention person you're talking to, you remind them of that, and they're they're kind of shocked because they know it. But we get so used to, oh, you know, I wanted to have 50 words by age two. Uh-uh. <laughs> Typically, developing toddlers have 50 words at age 18 months. So, again, as a therapist, you may need a refresher. If you don't have a chart that you routinely whip out of that therapy bag or on your desk or wherever you think about the kids that you serve, if you don't have something to continuously remind you of normal, I really, really, really want you to go back and listen to that show because you need to be familiar with what we should expect, not eligibility requirements, which essentially is what you're using when you depend on the milestones that you're looking at on a test that you may use or some kind of assessment. But really, really go back and remind yourself and reacquaint yourself with what normal is, normal language development, average, so that you really, again, start with where you should, which is always looking at 
at what we expect and what, again, typically developing children are doing rather than relying on your day-to-day experience, which is with kids who have delays. Now, if you're a parent, the information in show number 275 sometimes is a little bit hurtful because we are so sensitive when something is pointed out about our our kids. And that holds true no matter whether we're talking about language development, whether we're talking about how well they read once they get in school. Uh, Whether you're in high school, we're, we're sensitive about ACT scores and about grades and about, you know, someone said this about my child. That's human nature. I mean, that really, again, proves or demonstrates how much you care about your child. So and how and we, and because of that love we can become so sensitive and and things that people say about our children become so hurtful to us even when it's not intended to be. And so sometimes listening to a show about milestones when you already know that your child has a delay can be a little disheartening and you can get a little bit sad and even more disappointed than you might already feel. Some parents, though, kind of take the opposite approach. And if this is, if you can, if you've been in kind of that sensitive, um, hurt, even angry phase, you can get yourself kind of to make a pivot. And so you may not be able to do it right now, but hopefully in the next few days or weeks or months as you think about this, you may be able to get yourself there. But if you could just make yourself kind of pivot to, I want to know what, typical development is so that I can definitively say to myself, yeah, there's a problem here, and I've got to do something about it because I'm this kid's mom or I'm this baby's dad. I'm the one that this falls to. He or she can't go out and accomplish this on his or her own. I've got to be the cheerleader. I've got to be the person taking the reins and saying, what are we going to do about this? I've got to be the problem solver. So, again, that information may light a fire under you or get you to get on board with the action that you'll take versus just kind of staying stuck in in being sad. And, again, let me just say, I'm not faulting any parent who's at that particular phase in your journey with your kid because goodness knows I have been there not necessarily about language development although our oldest child who is now 26 and I should probably stop saying his age since he is a full-fledged adult now (laughs) but when he had a severe or has a severe learning disability and so not necessarily language connected although it's dyslexia so certainly that's a reading disability but as when when he was in all the way through elementary school and middle school and high school and even in college, my goodness, I cannot tell you the angst that his issues made me feel. And so I don't have exactly the same set of circumstances as a mom who has a child with language issues at two or another established diagnosis that that you are already well aware of. I can't put myself completely in your shoes, and the truth is nobody can, but I do understand how it is to be a mom or dad and feel a little bit hopeless. Let me just say that feeling, while completely normal, will never serve you. You've got to get out there and, and really, again, 
take the reins and know I can do this. I can make a real difference for my child. I know that he or she is going to make progress. And that's something we talk a lot about or I talked a lot about in show number 275. So go back and listen to that show if you haven't heard that yet. The second show, the show I did last week, number 276, was an overview show as well. And we talked about the first five skills on this list that children must acquire or must use before words emerge. And before I just zip through that list again, because I hate it if I feel like I'm doing the same show every week and I kind of, you know, take forever to move on to the new information, but I I always kind of want to want to pick up with where we left last week so that this in a series like this so that it feels like there's a flow. And let me remind you, I think my most important message from last week's show is that if you've been super focused on how many words your child can say or says or the progress he or she is making in speech therapy with no regard for the skills that we talked about last week or the skills that we'll talk about this week, and coupled with you're so focused on just the words that he or she can say, coupled with disappointment that that's not moving along faster or you feel like, man, there's something else we ought to be doing, or gosh, we started therapy three months ago. We arrived so far, have heard not one new word. If you're feeling like that, many, many, many times it's because we are just focused on the wrong problem. And so you've got all your all your energy is going toward to your kid. It's like you're saying, talk, talk, talk. I don't care about anything else. Nothing matters to me except what comes out of your little mouth. That's where we get stuck a lot of times. Even as a therapist, there are therapists who are just, again, hyper-focused on what a kid can say versus all these other prerequisite skills. And let me just remind you, these aren't skills that we that I pulled out of thin air <laughs> to talk about here. These are skills that we know after decades of researching language development. These are the things that happen in typically developing babies and in children with language disorders and delays. These are the things that have to come in that a kid has to be able to do before we hear words. And so, again, if you are frustrated that your child hasn't made more progress in the time that you've been in therapy and you're not quite sure why, you know, I have him in therapy, this lady's coming, you know, I've got a, several therapists on my child's team, yet I'm not hearing a thing here. Before you go fire everybody and start completely over, <laughs> look at this list of skills and make sure that y'all are addressing what could be, again, the root of the problem. And sometimes, parents, here's another thing that happens. Sometimes parents gloss over these skills. Your therapist may have talked about these things and may have mentioned these things, but nobody's really working on it. You kind of heard in that first evaluation appointment or that first little therapy session or two that you had, you heard her mention things that we're going to talk about today and certainly things we talked about last week things like joint attention things like how well does he play and you may have dismissed that in your mind as a parent you may have thought well, I don't care about that I just want him to talk and again I get that but let me just tell you the truth here unless you were working on the right things you may not see progress for 
a while, maybe not a long while, because we have to get these skills firmly established with a child before we can realistically expect to hear words. Now, last week I used a quote from Dr. James McDonald, who's a speech-language pathologist who's done just, uh, you know, overwhelmingly important work in the area of children with language delays. And one thing that he says that so struck me, and I was so happy to be reminded of this when I was preparing for this series, he said these prerequisite skills, and let me just say my list is not quite exactly what his list is because I, I pulled from all of my own experiences plus other researchers and experts that I, uh, who were my mentors and my teachers and who I read and devour their information. But one thing that he said that I, that I remember loving when I first heard or read him say it and then um, read his words, and then as I was prepping for this show, he said we want these skills that we're talking about, all of these prerequisites to be strong and stable meaning that we don't just see something once in a while, meaning that, and I think I gave this example on the very first show in this series, you know, you can't really count a child or give credit for a child for some of these skills if you've just seen it once or twice. We want these things to be well-established behaviors and characteristics and, and skills. I keep saying that word, but it's true. It's what they are. We want to see these things every single day. And I got that question last week from my mom who's listening to the podcast, and she said, you know, by frequently, do you mean that I would that I would see my child um, play with toys every day? I, I don't think she used the play skills um, question. I don't think that was a specific one in her email, but you get my point. She was really talking about words, I think, and she said, you know, when you're saying that he uses – 10 words, does that mean he has to use 10 different words every day? Or will we hear those 10 words every single day? Let me just say about that, context is important. If you're if you're looking at a word that's more unusual like butterfly, you know, a child would have to see a butterfly or have, be reminded or think about a butterfly or have some kind of contextual reference for butterfly before he used it, of course. And that may be a word that he or she knows and that he says and certainly that you're going to count in his vocabulary because when it comes up, when he sees a butterfly either outside or in a book or on TV or on a game or a toy, that he would know to label the butterfly with the word butterfly. And so, again, context is important. If a kid doesn't have a reason to use a gesture, a particular gesture or a word or any of these other skills that we're looking for, of course you may not see it every day. But for the most part, you will see and hear and observe whatever word you want to use here, these skills every single day. And, again, that would let you know this skill is strong and established. And remember what we said last week. Your job as a parent right now really may not be, I've got to get on this and fix this today, because today we're not talking about how to fix these things or how to address them or make them better or improve them. Today I'm just going to give you an overview like last week we did with skills 1 through 5. This week we're looking at skills 6 through 11, and we want to make sure that we are noticing whether or not a child can do these things. And again, it's an important, important, important point. Before we kind of get to the point where we're going to do something about it, we have to know what it is that we're going to address. So let me just go back and 
quickly review skills one through five, and then we'll move on to skills six through 11. Remember, the first thing we said last week is that a child has to respond to events in his environment. And we talked a lot about perception. And we're talking again here about things that we do with our senses. How does he hear? How does he see? How does he feel? We want to make sure, or and, and by feel I mean move or manipulate objects in his environment. We want to be sure that we have addressed what I kind of consider to be the medical piece, although an audiologist may kind of disagree with that with me calling hearing medical. But to me, I'm considering this just as kind of a starting point. If a child can't hear, he or she is not going to be able to learn what words mean and not going to be able to eventually use those words to talk. So we have to make sure that we have verified as best we can what's going on in that little brain and that little body and that we rule out things like hearing loss and uh, visual impairments and even bigger neurological issues or diagnoses that would contribute to a child's problem or really be the reason that there's a delay. So again, if a child is struggling with those things, you probably do already know it. We talked a little bit about ear infections last week too and how even a little bit of middle ear fluid can keep a child from hearing. And if you're a parent and no one's ever talked to you about this, when a kid has an ear infection, it means that fluid has gotten into the child's middle ear. You know, there's an outer ear, a middle ear, and an inner ear. So there's fluid in that middle ear. And it's the otitis media part, it, it's inflamed. There's infection there. Sometimes kids have fluid, though, without infection or without symptoms of that. So you may have a kid who doesn't have a fever. But here's my point with this. A little bit of fluid in a child's ear really muffles the language that he hears or anything that he's hearing in his environment. To me, it's it's akin to how when you're underwater in a swimming pool or if you're in a shower and really, really drenched and you know, the water's coming down, you know that somebody's talking, but you can't really understand what they're saying. And so a little guy or girl who's trying to learn what words mean is at a real disadvantage when they have fluid in their ears like that. Their little system is not set up to learn. So we have to do, again, everything within our power, short of, you know, you can't get in there and drain that fluid out yourself. <laughs> but you have to be sure that you're following up with medical attention. Some doctors, again, are so conservative with the use of antibiotics. And that uh, overuse of antibiotics certainly is a problem in the United States. But at the same time, we don't want to leave a known factor and contributing to language delay like chronic ear infections unaddressed. We just simply cannot do that. When we're worried about a child's development, we've got to give them the very, very, very best chance possible. And so when you have a child who is struggling to learn what words mean, we have to make sure that we're doing that due diligence and following up with medical interventions so that we can get those little ears clear and ready to hear. Okay, the second skill that we looked at was responding to people. And we talked a lot last week about how important social interaction is. And so if you have a kid who seems like a loner or a child who seems to prefer to do his own thing or she likes, she just pays attention to what she wants to pay attention to and it's very, very, very difficult to redirect her attention, particularly to a new person. You have to call her name you know, 55 times <laughs> before she can attend to you or you have to really, really get in her little face or if it's a chore to make her play with you, 
that child has a real problem with responding to people. And so we have to address the social interaction piece first because, guys, that's what communication is. It's learning how to respond to another person's attempts to interact with you or to talk to you or to play with you and be with you. And so when we have children who don't innately enjoy other people, meaning that they'd much rather kind of be by themselves or they 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 only seem to respond when they absolutely know that they need you, meaning they can't reach the cereal on the highest shelf themselves, although lots of our little friends try to <laughs> are really creative and crafty and they try to figure out ways to do that long before we think that they should be able to do that. They're good problem solvers, but they're not so great with people. It would be much easier if she could just say, Mom, cereal, right, <laughs> instead of putting her little life in danger by trying to climb up on the counter herself. So, again, when children don't necessarily automatically respond to people, we know that's where we have to start and that that's a big, big problem. It certainly is one of the core deficits of autism. And again, I'm not saying these words and these potential diagnoses to scare you. And here's the truth. I've not met your child, so I can't say definitively whether your child is or isn't at risk for some of the diagnoses that we'll talk about that are associated with these problems but I can let you know that it's a red flag so that you can discuss it with someone who is able to be there with you in real life to help you with the specifics for your particular child. My job here is just to tell you what these red flags are and what they potentially can mean, and then your job is going to be to sort that out and, and more importantly, find somebody, if you're a parent, to help you through this process. So, again, that second skill was response to people. And let me just go one step further. And I think I said this last week, but it bears repeating. It's really, really important. If you have a child who is not consistently responding to you and responding to other people, if he doesn't light up and if he doesn't, if he fights you in your attempts to play with him and get uh, let you join him in whatever he's doing, this is the point you should be focused on in therapy, not what he says. He is not developmentally ready to talk yet. He's just not. And we know, I know, from working with children like this for over 20 years, it's a starting point. So you've got to get social games going. You've got to get, you've got to help him see that it is fun to play with you. And it is fun to look at your face when you're talking to him. And it will... It is important, and it will change his little life when you can help him consistently learn to participate with other people. And, again, we have to start with where kids are and with what they like to do. And, and the focus of the show is not telling you how to work on social interaction. We're not there yet. We will be in a couple of weeks. But today it's just to get you to notice. And if you're a therapist listening to this and if you have somehow forgotten how important social interaction is, i beg you <laughs> to, if you can, for these children for whom this is a problem, forget about teaching them to talk yet. Just forget about it. You need to make your purpose right now, how well does he interact with me? How well does he look at me? How well does he stay with me? How are these other skills that we're going to talk about in a second, like joint attention moving along? You've got to cover your foundational pieces first. You absolutely have to. So that's kind of my soapbox moment about 
engagement skills and interaction skills. And go back and listen to last week's show for a more in-depth review of that. The third skill that we want children to acquire, or we know that they will acquire before words emerge, is an attention span. And again, last week we talked a lot about that and how important that is. And we're not talking about that a child will be able to sit with you for an hour and never move and never have its attention redirected away. That's completely unrealistic. That's not developmentally appropriate. But what we are talking about is that a kid can stay with you and that he does like to be with people. And, again, it lasts for more than a millisecond. (laughs) Now, we know from research, there's a study from 2008. Gartner did it. And if you want the exact journal article reference on this, if you're that kind of person, you can email me and I'll be glad to send you that reference. But the normal toddler attention span is three to six minutes with something that he likes. And any point beyond that, according to this study, really will mean that that child is totally into it, totally engrossed, you know, his attention is captivated internally, or that an adult will have to support that child's ability to pay attention. So I like knowing that three to six minutes is normal and that anything beyond that If it takes him longer, if it's going to take longer to get through that book or longer to do that puzzle or longer to do that back and forth play with you or or whatever, or eating a snack, taking a bath, whatever you're looking at, you have about three to six minutes (laughs) that you know is developmentally appropriate. And any time beyond that, you as the adult, it's, it's going to fall on you to try to give that child a reason to stay with you and, again, to teach him that it's fun and that it's worth it to him to want to stay with you and do what you're doing. And so go back and listen uh, for a more in-depth explanation of that attention span piece. But it's important. We have to have – sometimes kids are so busy and we don't – you know, we we know that um, and we know that it's a problem, yet we don't really do too much to address it. And we're going to talk about that again on the show specifically devoted to strategies to help a child develop an attention span. But for right now, you need to know how important it is. And if your child is super, super, super active, or as I've said before, busy is my favorite way to describe these kinds of kids, we know that we have to get that piece going first and help him learn how to stay with you and attend and and participate better before we have a chance of hearing new words. We just do, because he hasn't had an opportunity to really learn that word, own that word. Even even from a receptive language perspective, he doesn't know what that word means yet, because he hasn't given himself time to learn it. He hasn't slowed down enough so that he can do it. And so attention span, again, the number three skill on this list. Number four was an evolution or a progression of attention to joint attention, and we spent a lot of time last week talking about joint attention, what it is, what it means, but really here we're talking about shifting attention between what what, you're, what a child is doing and the other person participating in that activity with him, and it's a huge problem, especially for our little friends who have autism. It's a big red flag when a kid just gets so focused on what he or she is paying attention to with little regard for what's going on around him, particularly people who are trying to get his attention and talk to him. And so, again, when a kid tunes this out, he misses language. He misses uh, the whole opportunity to learn what words mean, what you're trying to teach him, and certainly to learn what learn how to say words. He's, he's for whatever reason, not able to really move his attention from 
what he's doing to include another person. So joint attention is huge. It was the fourth skill. And go back and listen to last week's show if you want more information about that. The fifth skill that we talked about last week, we started talking about were um, early play skills. And, again, this is important for children. And sometimes parents will say, well, he doesn't like toys. I don't really care if he learns how to play. Again, that line, I just wanted to talk. You know, parents kind of become have tunnel vision with that goal, and and let me just say, I'm not dismissing talking. (laughs) My goodness, I've devoted my whole career to teaching children how to talk, and my whole life's work. I'm not saying that it's not important because it is. It certainly is kind of the culmination of all of these skills that we're talking about. And here's another truth related to play skills. Until a kid really learns how objects work within the world from a concrete perspective, meaning that he understands cause and effect, he knows that he can do something, he can behave in a certain way, he can push a button, he can open a door, he can, you know, press down the lever, until he learns, hey, what I do can change things around me, that's learning it in the concrete way, in the in the <laughs> black and white, real-world kind of way. Unless he understands things like that and his cognitive skills, his, his uh, thinking and learning skills are developing, there is no way he's ready to learn how to talk. But language is harder than that. Language is actually symbolic. And where we think about things and and toys and objects, those are more concrete versus words which are abstract. Words are symbols. And so we have to help a child learn how to play so that he does begin to learn all of those skills from an operational perspective. And, again, this is just getting a little more technical than I want it to be on the podcast, particularly for a parent who's never thought about this. But we have to teach them what the object let's say it like this we have to teach them that that four well i guess it's more than four like a block we have to teach them that wooden wooden block actually what it can do and how it moves and the things how they can use it we have to teach them all of that they have to learn all of that before they're ready to learn that block that word that i just said is it actually means that wooden square object that they're playing with I hope that makes sense to you. I hope I've explained that in a way so that you know why play is important. Play also gives children opportunities to learn. Children who are busy doing things in their environment, exploring, experimenting with toys, they have many, many, many more opportunities to learn versus a child who's just kind of a roamer, meaning a kid who just kind of goes from room to room to room to room in his home, or a kid who's a runner, a kid who's super, super active, who, like we just talked about, doesn't really settle down enough to play and manipulate objects and learn how, how things work. Play is super, super, super important for giving children those opportunities. And, again, we'll talk about this when we get to the fifth show where we are actually taking one skill. And I'm saying beyond what we're doing today. Today we're just talking about what these skills are, saying this is what you can do. This is a strategy you can try. This is a technique you can use. We'll get there, but for now just know that play is important. And if you've dismissed that or, or if you've gotten a little miffed that you think about your therapist well all she does is play when are we going to get to the talking part (laughs) when is she going to work on teaching my child to say a word 
she's actually doing a really good job with making sure that play is prioritized for your child and that she's assessing what that child understands about the world. And and play is the very best way to do that. Play is the best way to observe and assess a child's cognition or how she he or she is thinking and learning. So super, super important. And again, we've got so much to talk about in the area of play. But just for now, no, playing is really, really important. It's how kids learn everything when they're toddlers and preschoolers and even beyond. Okay, so let's move on now to talk about skills 6 through 11. You've heard 1 through 5, and I hope if you're a parent, you're kind of saying, well, he does great with this, and he does okay with this, and I think this one's emerging. You know, you should be saying these kinds of things to yourself. And I forgot to mention this as well. You should kind of be thinking about this in terms of, do I never see this behavior? Do I sometimes see him do this? Will he do it occasionally? Does he do it frequently? Do I always see my child use the skill? And so the things, this is what we said in a previous show. When you're saying, well, he sort of does it, I kind of see that when you're kind of hedging on that, that's the skill that you know. That's your next skill to work on. It's already emerging. It's already coming in. Your child is already trying to do that. And with a little bit of adult support, we know that we can strengthen that skill. So really be listening for that, not just so much for a check it off with can he or can't he do it, but sort of qualify it like we talked about in a previous show as well. Tell you know, really look for these skills. Really say, Oh yeah, that's a good example of you know, and fill in the blank with from the first five that we've already talked about or this next six today. So the sixth skill that we are looking for that toddlers use before words emerge, standing early gestures. And really I should say understanding and using early gestures. <laughs> But I always emphasize understand first because, guys, I'm just firmly convinced that until a child understands a word or understands a symbol like a gesture, until he kind of gets that first, it's unrealistic for us to expect him to be able to use that skill. And so I like talking about how well a child understands gestures because that gives us more information about where he is developmentally. So let's talk about what gestures are. And and if you're a therapist, you know, this is old hat, but if you're a parent, you may not have thought too much about this. But gestures are ways that we communicate with body movements that mean something. So if I held my hand up to you and I moved it up and down, you know that that means what? I'm waving bye-bye to you. I'm telling you I'm about to leave. See you later. You know, and you don't even necessarily have to hear the word. If you're watching me, if you're seeing me wave to you and then turn around, you know, you could see me waving through a window as you drove by my house and you would know, well, you know, you would know I'm greeting you or telling you goodbye because that's symbolic. You've learned what that means. If you see someone point, use their index finger and they're looking at something What does that mean to you? You know what that means. You look for it. You know that they're trying to redirect your attention. They're trying to say, notice this, see this. So you've understood that gesture. And other things, other kinds of early gestures 
motioning for someone to come on. I like to even think about things like clapping together. Clapping usually means what? It means, yay, you're celebrating, you're excited. Someone's done something you like or something, or a child has done something that he or she feels like he deserves praise for. <laughs> As therapists, we get kids on our caseload who we kind of we, we kind of teach them that we're, we're going to cheer about all of their little efforts. And so they kind of get to the point in therapy where they start clapping, and then if you're not clapping for them, they look at you like, clap, come on here, come on. <laughs> they expect you to do that because you've taught them that that's what you're going to do, that, that what, that's what comes after their efforts at saying or doing something you want them to do. And it's such a cute little gesture. I love it when I see that happen. And so, again, gestures are important because it lets you know a kid understands he's becoming symbolic, that he knows what you're doing means something else. It's a red flag for kids who who don't begin to follow your point, who don't understand waving bye-bye or certainly, you know, and again, we're talking about whether they understand and use the gesture. So many kids not waving bye-bye. Gestures usually come in right around 12 months, and guys, uh, they come in with little or no effort for children who are typically developing. And I, I and I shouldn't say no effort because certainly we have to model, we have to show a kid. He's not just going to know how to wave bye-bye if no one's ever done that for him before. So it's unrealistic to think that you wouldn't have done anything. But typically developing children pick up on these things pretty easily. Now, a parent may work on that for a couple of weeks, you know, where really is, is, you know, dad's leaving for work and mom's with the child and, you know, you're saying, oh, tell daddy bye-bye. Come on, come on, let's wave. Come on. And you may reach down and grab a child's hand if he's not doing it and and force it up and down so that he or she practices. But typically developing babies pick that up pretty quickly. And by one, they're waving a lot. And so if you have a child who's 18 months, 24 months, and not using gestures like waving, pointing, clapping, showing you things, shaking their heads yes and no, that's a that's a problem. That's a red flag. Children with autism really, really struggle with learning to um, understand what gestures mean. They kind of, again, you know how we talked about um, a core deficit of autism is children aren't interacting with other people and responding to other people. Children with autism, that's called social referencing. And children with autism, that's one of the core deficits. And I like this is how I explain it to parents. They don't notice other people or other people aren't important enough in their kind of what captures their attention automatically for them to pay attention to them long enough to learn what their gestures mean. Now, that's, again, a really simplistic explanation. There's certainly more that that is involved in that. But that's kind of a, a starting point for parents to be able to understand it. So... When we don't see a kid use gestures, we all, you know, if you have a child who's not showing you things, not pointing, not not um, reaching for things, and then looking at you and trying to get your attention, and really again use use his little body to show you what he means. He's not very expressed, like he makes a sad face rather than an all-out cry, because he knows that you're going to respond to that. And and a kid who's not purposefully using his or her little body in that way before he or she can talk, you know, that's a, a big indicator that <coughs> excuse me, language is not going to move along as as it should because the nonverbal communicative foundation is not there. So we have to really pay attention to that. And again, in typically developing 
children, gestures emerge at about 12 months. Other researchers have said if we don't see gestures emerging by 18 to 24 months, that child really needs to be screened for autism, and I totally agree with that. We do know that there are other reasons that children might use gestures. Kids with motoric involvement, meaning cerebral palsy or some other low muscle tone, you know, maybe a kid with Down syndrome, certainly those children, any kind of kid, any kind of muscle or motor involvement certainly can impact his or her ability to use gestures. So it's not just kids with autism who or who are, are at risk for autism who struggle with using gestures. It could certainly involve um, other kinds of issues as well. But I just want to give you the things to look for so that you'll know. And again, sometimes a parent will say, well, there's nothing wrong with his arm because he really uses it to throw the ball and he can climb up, you know, he uses his hands and his arms and he climbs up the ladder on the slide and They'll talk about all these things. You know, I don't understand why I can't wave. Remember how we talked about at the beginning in that first show in 275 that language really starts in your brain. It's really a neurological uh, originator versus there's something wrong with his hand. And, again, that's, that's why I can't wave. You know, but it's kind of a simplistic explanation. But, again, I want you to have a way to think about it and begin to think about it so that it makes more sense, particularly, again, if you're a parent. And if you're a therapist, Use my words. These are ways that you can describe these things and discuss these things with parents. We have to explain what's going on with their child because they don't know. That's the reason that you're there. And so you need to be having these conversations and talking with parents about these behaviors and in this way so they certainly will know what you mean. All right, skill number seven. I cannot emphasize the importance of this skill enough, it's receptive language. It's understanding how well does your child understand early familiar words. This indicates I can learn. I can link meaning to words. Words are useful to me. I know what you're talking about. I It's not just random noise like static in the background. Or I always use this example, the Charlie Brown teacher. Did you watch Charlie Brown movies? Do you know that the teacher in the Charlie Brown classroom always sounds like wah, 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 wah. Kids who don't understand what words mean probably think we sound like that too right? Have you heard somebody speak a language you don't understand? And you know they're talking, and you know when they're probably talking to you, but you don't really have a clue with what they're saying beyond that. Other than they're trying to get your attention, maybe, or that they're upset with you, you kind of have the emotional, uh, their reason, their emotionality, you get that, you get when they're upset or when they're happy or whatever, but you don't really understand the words. That's how our kids who have receptive language issues um, that, that's how they feel. That's what they're noticing and thinking. So I think sometimes when I'm talking to a kid in really long sentences or paragraphs and he's looking away, I think, oh, oh, that's my fault. That's on me. I've given him more than he can handle. He does not understand what I'm saying here. I've got to help him understand. I have to slow down or break it up or simplify however you want to think about it. So understanding early words is huge. So let's talk about the kinds of receptive language skills that we're looking for in children before words emerge. They have to be able to recognize familiar people, so meaning that you say, where's daddy? Where's daddy? And the child looks for dad. That's how you know if he understands the word daddy. Or uh, your, your pet, anything kind of familiar. 
that's pretty novel and pretty fun that they would like. So a lot of times, you know, when I'm assessing a child and I'm saying how how many words does he understand, and mom says, or or I might start with something like, what's to, how does he follow simple directions? And mom says, well, he doesn't. What are you talking about? I can't get him to do a thing. Should he be even doing that? Because sometimes parents don't know that a child who's 18 months should be following a variety of directions. Even a 12-month-old should understand things like give me that if they're holding the ball and you hold your hand out and you're saying give it to me. A 12-month-old, a 15-month-old should do that no problem, you know, of course, unless they don't want you to have it. And that's a separate issue, isn't it? But they should certainly understand them to give you something. Other examples would be things like go get your shoes. Or, you know, if they like to read books, if that's something you do all the time, you should be able to say, go get a book. Or if their favorite toy is something like a ball or a car or Thomas, you should be able to say, where's Thomas? Go get Thomas and we'll play. And they should scamper off and get it and bring it back to you. That's what I mean by receptive language. They they should follow directions. So if I'm saying that kind of thing to a mom and talking to a mom about that and she says, no, he doesn't do that at all, then you break it down. You say, well, does he recognize familiar objects? Can you say, uh, where's milk? Or like we said before, show me your shoes. Or something, you know, body parts. That's something that we all work on as parents. You know, where are your eyes? Where's your nose? So when we have kids who aren't following and under, following those directions, understanding those commands, we know that there's a receptive language problem. And this is what I was going to say. This is where I started with this point. So if a parent says, no, he's not doing any of that, or something like, we haven't worked on body parts. I didn't know we were supposed to know that yet. That's my fault, which moms will continuously try to do because as a mom, it's just easier if we blame it on ourselves than really say there's, there's you know, it's just easier than to blame it on ourselves and assume that kind of guilt rather than thinking, oh, there's something going on with my child. He's not learning like he or she should. And again, sometimes that is a much, much, much easier for for us as moms to take that on ourselves and feel like it's somehow our fault rather than there's something really, really going on here developmentally. So beyond the the beyond the you know the body parts and things, then I'll say, well, let's just figure out his favorite things. You know, if they if, and this is my example about the dog or the cat. If there's a family pet, you know, I'll use the family pet's name. You know, where's JoJo or where's spot or whatever the dog's name is show me buster (laughs) you know they should be doing that because that's a familiar object that's been important enough for a child to there's not a problem learning language they certainly will respond to something like your pet's name or their familiar people like we talked about daddy or their brother their siblings names their brother or sister that's something you know that i might say you know if the sister's name is amanda you know i'll spend some time saying where's amanda let's find amanda show me show me and when a child doesn't have a receptive language problem when things are moving along normally with how they understand but between 12 and 18 months they are looking at their sister every time you ask them to do that you know that's something they don't have to struggle to do they know what you want them to do they know what that means or I may say something like, uh, does he like to play outside? And then mom will say, shh, you know, don't say the word outside because he does know that one. If you say that, we'll have to go. You know, that's a good indication. Or, you know, a parent might say, well, he really loves water so or taking a bath. So for that kid, that's something that we know, okay, he's learned that word. You know, the receptive language may be 
slow to come in, but we've got something to build on there. So those are just certainly things for you as a parent to notice in this next week. How well does he understand what I ask him to do? How how well does he follow little familiar commands? Or even something like when you're trying to put his shirt on and you say, put your arm in, you know, does he do those kinds of things? Children who aren't learning like that, who don't understand what, the words mean that they hear every day, day in and day out. That's a big, big problem. And it just would stand to reason from kind of a common sense perspective, kids have to understand words before they use words. So think about that. If you've never had a conversation about receptive language with your child's therapist or if you're getting ready for an initial evaluation for your child, that's certainly something that you should be looking at and talking about with your therapist or even if you're in a stage before that with the pediatrician you're trying to decide do we need a referral for therapy or not that's something your pediatrician should be asking how well does he understand the words that he hears she say now don't get caught up in saying he understands everything because that's not true either even for a typically developing kid and sometimes again we'll overestimate what children are able to do you know you could not say to a typically developing two-year-old what's two plus two you know so they're not going to understand everything and I think as a parent you may think well I didn't mean that I'm not saying she understands you know words like constellation or uh, you know adult words I'm not saying that I'm just saying she understands everything in her daily context that's probably not true either so if you're kind of on that he understands everything bandwagon this week your assignment should be really pay attention to the kinds of commands he follows for you and then the things that he doesn't so that you'll get a better idea of perceptively what your child can and can't do. All right, let's move on to skill number eight. This one's important, and I know you haven't missed it if you're a parent of a late talker. And again, this kind of falls in the common sense realm, which I hope all of these should after we've explained them and discussed them. But skill number eight is important. Children have to be noisy. They have to vocalize before we can expect them to talk. Occasionally, you will hear a story from a mom who says, my child did not make a sound at all, and all of a sudden she got up one morning talking in full sentences. Or they'll tell you a story that they've heard about a child who's done that. Gosh, that is so rare. Please don't depend on that to happen. And again, if you're a therapist, you're probably rolling your eyes right now that I even mentioned that. (laughs) But sometimes parents kind of, fall into that and they they know that their child's not babbling they know their child's not making very much noise but they hold out for hope that gosh they're going to wake up tomorrow and be typically developing and again that's just a normal hope for a parent to cling to and hold on to and again I get it I totally get it and we don't need to make parents feel badly about excuse me about feeling that way because it is a real normal kind of hope for a parent to have but let me just remind parents that kids do have to vocalize and they have to learn hey I can use my voice on purpose and I can I can make it loud and I can whisper and they have to learn all these cool things that they can control and so being noisy is the first part of that and certainly typically developing babies start to get noisy you know, six months or so, nine months. And then those noises become more purposely directed. So it sounds like they're saying that or get, you know, this and that. Or they're, you know, even before they have a word, they're able to kind of order you around with their little grunts. 
and you even if they're not telling you exactly what they want, you again have an idea of their intent. You know when they're mad. You know when they want you to hurry up because they get a little bossy even with their tone. And so vocalizing is really, really important. And sometimes we will encounter a child in speech therapy who doesn't make a peep. You know, we don't hear one little noise from that child. So with those kids, you don't start with words. You start with helping them learn to be noisy. And again, we're not going to talk about all those strategies or all those tricks. We'll get to that later. But know that you've got to hear something from your child's mouth. Now, again, this is what a lot of parents blame at the beginning. When a kid isn't talking, they'll say, there must be something wrong with his mouth. And that's not the first place we want to go. You know, I've already said it on this show, and I'll say it again. Usually we're talking about more processes that are more neurologically based, meaning that language originates in your brain. So it's not usually a mouth problem, but it could be, or a vocal cord problem. You've got to rule all that stuff out, particularly if, if your child cries without voicing, meaning you don't hear the, <laughs> you know, you don't hear variation. You You look over and you see tears rolling down and you see that your child is upset by their little, how their little face is grimaced, but you don't hear the noise, that's a problem. And you've got, you've got to get that ruled out. You've got to determine what, what's causing that. So we have to hear that a child is progressively becoming more and more and more noisy. The next skill, number nine, is that a child learns how to imitate. And that would be not only imitate words, which certainly is our overall goal here, but they learn to copy what you're doing. They learn to copy your actions. Remember, we just talked about gestures. So they learn that when you clap, they clap with you. Or when you wave bye-bye, they wave bye-bye back. Okay, so learning how to, how to imitate is a huge skill. And actually, there are studies that say that we can look at how a child imitates at 18 months, and we will be able to predict or use that factor to predict his or her language development at 36 months more so than any other factor. So imitation is huge in the context of how and when a child will learn how to talk. We have to get them imitating first. And, you know, if you've listened to this show for a while or if you're familiar with my uh, website, teachmetotalk.com, and my products, I have a book about this called Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, and I have a whole course, a six-hour course, that I teach about the progression of imitation skills. You know, kids begin with imitating actions with objects. So how do they copy you when they play with a toy? If you were sitting with your child and you, let's just say you're in the kitchen and you have a, a pan or a bowl on the floor and you um, reach down and pat the bottom of that pan like you're going to play the bongos, a child who can imitate will copy that because that's fun. And he saw you do it, and he thinks, I want to do that too. Guys, that's where language begins. It's with understanding it's fun for me to try to do what you've done. And imitation is a huge part of normal development in toddlers. Kids want to do things with you. They, When you're in the bathroom, they want to go in the bathroom and do exactly what you're doing. I, I give this example in one of my courses. I could not vacuum the floor when my our daughter was 
one and two and three because she fought me for the vacuum cleaner. She wanted to do it. So if you're not seeing your child join in those activities and try to copy what you're doing, you know, if you if you're not fighting your toddler, you know, when you when you want to when you try to load the dishwasher, your toddler should want at least some of the time to help do that and try to he's imitating you, he's copying you. So that's what I want you to look for. When we're not seeing that imitation in daily routines, in real everyday life, that's a problem. And we know that we've got to back way up and teach that child how to imitate. And again, we'll get there in, a, in several weeks. We'll talk about that whole process. If you want to skip <laughs> the steps, you think, okay, 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 that's, this is the problem. This is what I really need information about. You can go ahead and get that book now, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, or hang on you know, seven, eight, nine weeks, and I'll talk to you about that in, in a future show. But imitation is huge, and that's the breakdown that where we see why words aren't coming in for lots of late-talking toddlers that we work with. Uh, so imitation was the ninth skill. All right, tenth skill is that a child initiates. What do I mean by initiates? I mean that it's his idea to get your attention to try to communicate with you. You know, we talked about responding before. Remember we we said way back in skill number one that a child responds to the environment, and in skill number two we said that a child responds to people. This is where a child takes the lead, and he or she works to get your attention. And again, you may see, you're going to see that well before you hear words. You know, well before you hear, Mom, come over here, I need you. You're going to see your child look at you, vocalize you know, and again beyond crying not just the full out cry that immediately gets your attention but you're know, trying to redirect your attention with his or her voice even before they can call you mom gestures that we talked about before a child should be trying to show you things and get you to look at things get you to reach things for them and get them things long before we hear words so I don't think I've mentioned this on this show but Maybe so, but all of these skills really do play a part of the next skill, meaning that they're a prerequisite. You know, we've got to see a kid understand those gestures and then copy your gestures. And then here we want a child to initiate, meaning that they use the gesture first. So let me just give you some examples from therapy. And again, if you're a therapist, you recognize this. Kids who... Begin to initiate with you may remember that you did something last week, and they do, and they want to do it again. And even without telling you, hey, I want, I want that ball and hammer toy again. They're doing everything that they can to make sure that you understand that that's what they want to play. Or take another example, kind of the opposite example. Let's say that you're doing something that they don't want to do, want to do with you, and they start waving bye bye. Well, they're initiating their, hey, I'm done with this, and they're doing it in a higher level way than just getting up and walking away or throwing it at you or whatever. You know, they're, they're letting you know they're, they're, they're launching a new topic of conversation here with a gesture or with um, maybe even something like eye gaze or like we talked about before, those purposeful vocalizations. So kids should be trying to that should be – letting you know what they want and that it's their idea. And, again, they're giving you more information here than you just interpreting or inferring or trying to figure out what they want. They've done something to let you know, 
hey, I want that. And again, it could be something like leading you to the kitchen. And even our little friends who have autism, they kind of get stuck at that leading phase. I mean, they, and so sometimes I'll, I'll talk about this with a mom, and a mom kind of goes, oh, good. You know, oh, he leads me all the time. That's good, right. And I don't ever want to say, no, that's not good, because any kind of communication is good. Any initiation is fantastic. You know, we have to see that first. But we don't want a kid who's kind of stuck at that phase that they don't understand, say, the social that goes with that, so that if they're leading you into the kitchen, we do want to know that they're able to point and show you exactly what they want or that they're able to look toward what they want and then look back at you. You know, what was that? That's a great example of joint attention. So, again, we want to see that initiation piece, and then kids also have to be able to do that next little step, which leads into skill 11, which is turn-taking. You know, development is a cooperative process. All of these things that we've talked about have to come together, and turn-taking is, is one of these things, meaning that a child, let's say, let's go back to that earlier skill of imitation. They understand you do it, then I do it, then you do it, then I do it. And that nice flow, that back and forth flow gets going. Now, therapists would call that reciprocity. And if you're a mom, again, you may, or dad, you've not heard that word used in quite this way before. But that back and forth, do they understand that communication is a two-way street? Do they understand that they can ask you for something and then get it? And then... Keep that little cycle of communication going. Do they understand that you play a game, um, let's say something like give me five. You're holding up your hand. You're slapping his hand. You know, you may do that again with the second term, uh, turn. Or a game even like peekaboo or patty cake. You're going to repeat that game. You're going to keep that back and forth and back and forth and back and forth going. A little more simplistic example would be, let's say you play a game like you honk your child's nose, like meaning that you're going to push his nose and say honk, honk, or beep, beep, or something, whatever silly little thing that you do. You want to see your child try to do that back to you. You want him reaching up for your nose, okay? Uh, another really common example with turn-taking in toddlers would be that when a kid is drinking from a cup, you know, I he, he wants you to drink too. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had <laughs> little bumps and, almost bruises on my lips from a child trying to shove his sippy cup in my mouth because they're they're turn-taking. They want me to have a drink too. And so, again, we want to see this back-and-forth process develop so that they understand that basic structure of how conversations eventually happen. It's, it's a two-way street. I talk, I listen, I talk, I listen, I talk, I listen. And again, it comes in with nonverbal communication as well. You know, we can take a little, like we used that example before of uh, using the pan or the bowl to pretend like we're playing the bongos. And so I'm going to beat on the pan and then you're going to beat on the pan. And then I'm going to pat the pan again and then you do it. So that Nice back and forth turn taking. Children who have difficulty with turn taking, you know, really there's a problem with responding or initiating. And we've already talked about how important those two skills are, and certainly those are related to turn taking. So we've spent two shows now kind of giving you the overview of what these 11 skills are that happen before words emerge. And remember, again, they happen in typical development and they happen in children who are later to acquire words. So I hope it's given you a nice overview of what you can look at and what you can work on while you're still waiting on those words to occur and to begin. And, and 
I said it at the beginning of the show, but let me just say it again. If you've been so focused on talking that you've never thought about these other factors, that's your job between now and and next week, when next week shows out, for you to really, really look at what your child is doing and be able to say, well, no wonder he's not talking yet because I'm not seeing this and I'm not seeing that and this is coming in, but it's not strong and stable yet. I want you to be able to really look at these factors. And this certainly, as we said last week, should be a conversation starter for you to use with your child's therapist so that you can have conversations about receptive language and gestures and imitation and early play and all of these other skills that we've talked about so that you can be sure as a parent that all of your bases are covered and that you are doing everything you can to set the stage for uh, words to begin to emerge. All right, so that's all for this week's show. Join me next week, and we will begin talking about the specifics that we'll use to address all of these. Thanks so much, and have a great day.